Heavenly Father, we give You thanks for Your Word by which You reveal Yourself to us. And we thank You for revealing Yourself to us in the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ. Thank You for His humility. Thank You for His sacrifice for us. Thank You that He is exalted at Your right hand and has sent out His Spirit upon us. May Your Spirit bless the preaching of Your Word that we would be consecrated and transformed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 118, the psalm that we sang just a few minutes ago, has always had a very important place in the church's celebration of the season of Lent and of Palm Sunday and Passion Week. As you know, we sing part of that psalm every Sunday at the end of the service during Lent. Because... Psalm 118 gets a lot of airtime in the Gospel accounts of the week leading up to Jesus' death and resurrection. Matthew uh, quotes it more than any of the other Gospels. Uh, he, actually, Matthew and Luke both have three quotations from Psalm 118 within a couple chapters of each other in the Gospels. The the cry that we heard, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. All four of the Gospels include that quotation. That's from Psalm 118. Jesus in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tells the parable of the wicked tenants and then says that the corner, the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. That is from Psalm 118 and that's included in in all the Gospels except for John. And then in Matthew and Luke, Jesus laments over the city of Jerusalem and quotes again from Psalm 118, saying, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118 is a sort of salvation soundtrack. It's so important to the Gospel narratives, it's so important to uh, the passion of Jesus because it held a central role in the celebration of the Passover by the people of Israel. Psalms 113 through 118 uh, became known in Judaism around the time of Jesus. They became known as the Egyptian Hallel. The word Hallel is the word Praise, hallelujah, means praise Yahweh. Hallel means praise. These psalms, Psalms 113 to 118, became known as the Egyptian Hallel because they were sung at many of the festivals of Israel but had a special place in the celebration of the Passover, the exodus from Egypt. Uh, we read, Dave read for us the song of Moses. And if you were listening carefully, you, you may have picked up on the fact that Psalm 118 is actually sort of a culmination, a weaving together of numerous songs of salvation throughout Scripture. It's a salvation soundtrack, but it's sort of the culmination of many other songs of salvation. The Song of Moses uh, appears multiple times 
uh, in Psalm 118. The Song of David in 2 Samuel 22 uh, is referred to and alluded to in Psalm 118. The Song of Deborah in Barak in Judges 5 is alluded to. And many of the other psalms are encapsulated and combined into this sort of final movement of praise and thanksgiving for God's salvation. This is why it had such a prominent place in the festival celebrations of Israel. And this is why the crowds burst into singing this song as they entered Jerusalem with Jesus to prepare for the Passover. Jesus had come to the Passover in Jerusalem at least two other times before this one, according to John's chronology. John John records three Passovers of Jesus, which is where we get the idea that Jesus had a three-year ministry. Jesus had come uh, probably every other year of His life, though, before His formal ministry began. In fact, Luke tells us that Jesus journeyed to Jerusalem with His family when He was 12 years old. Do you remember this story? He got lost in the crowds. His family was traveling home and they realized that Jesus was not with them. They thought He was with the relatives. They thought He was with the neighbors. And they searched and searched. And after three days of searching, where did they find Him? In the temple. And he was, he was saying things to the religious leaders that, was, that, that were astonishing them. He was astounding the religious leaders with his wisdom, with his understanding. But this trip to the temple on this Passover would be very different. Jesus would go to celebrate the Passover. He would enter the temple and He would engage in conversation with the religious leaders. And the whole, all the nation, the whole, all the crowds would be astonished at His teaching. But the religious leaders would not be impressed. Instead of admiring uh, the knowledge of a 12-year-old boy, they would know that He had come to judge the temple. They would understand that this was the appearance of the Lord in His temple that Malachi had predicted. They would know that the parables He told were against them. And they would plot to kill Him and ultimately they would crucify Him. In Luke 9, during the transfiguration, Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration talking with Moses and Elijah about His exodus that He was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And when Jesus enters the temple for the Passover this time, He's coming not only to celebrate God's deliverance of the people of Israel from Egypt, He's coming to bring about a whole new exodus. A new salvation. Israel had become Egypt. And they needed salvation once again. Not just from Pharaoh. Not from the Herods or the Romans or whomever. They needed salvation from sin. They needed a return not just to the land. They were in the land. 
they needed a whole new creation, a new heaven and a new earth. And Jesus would inaugurate those things in His death and resurrection. So Psalm 118 has a rich significance in the story of Israel's history and in our celebration of Palm Sunday. But it also provides uh, the perfect soundtrack for Holy Week because of its narrative flow. It, it has a movement. It has a sense of movement of a, of a conquering uh, king or a triumphant uh, worshiper coming closer to the temple to give thanks to the Lord and the crowds joining in His praise. And He eventually he enters the gates and He moves all the way up to the sanctuary to offer sacrifice. And so I want to give uh, even just a sort of I'm going to try to cover the entire psalm here. It's 29 verses, um, so I'll have to move quickly. But I hope you'll get a sense of the movement, the progression of the psalm, and the significance to, of it for us as we celebrate uh, and observe Christ's passion this week. If you have your Bibles, it would obviously be helpful if you followed along since we're going to be covering a lot of material here. Um, and I won't have time to reread the whole thing as I go. The psalm opens and closes with the same acclamation of praise. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. This is an, an imperative command. Give thanks to the Lord. The congregation as we come to find out, is being led in worship by some sort of royal figure. We're not exactly sure who this was originally. It may just be sort of a conglomeration uh, of different uh, praise events. Whoever, the, whether it was David or a, a king, or maybe it was after the exile, we're not quite sure. The congregation is being called to worship, led into worship, with this command to gather and give thanks to God. Worship is not optional. Worship, giving thanks to God, is an obligation. A joyful obligation, but an obligation nonetheless. When God summons His people to worship, we better show up. But why? Why should we give God thanks? We give thanks to the Lord for He is good. He is good. This is the fundamental uh, confession of God's people. Whether we are facing temptation, whether we are facing affliction, whether we are facing persecution or chastisement of God Himself, we confess that the Lord is good. This was, after all, the core of the serpent's lie in the garden, trying to cast doubt on the goodness of God. Is Did God really say, don't you know that, that God's holding out on you? He tried to cast doubt on God's Word and He tried to cast doubt on God's goodness. And oftentimes, in the face of affliction, we are tempted to doubt God's goodness. Could a good God, how could a good God let this happen? How could a good God 
do this to us. But the ultimate confession of faith, whether in joy or in sorrow, is that God is good. And the primary way that God demonstrates His goodness, the primary way that God's goodness is manifest to us, is through His steadfast love. This word that occurs multiple times in this passage uh, is a very uh, rich uh, theological concept. It's a very rich word in the Old Testament. And it refers to, you may see it translated, loving kindness or steadfast love. It's one of those words that you just, you got to pile up the descriptions in English to really capture what it, what it means. And in the context of Psalm 118, it generally refers to God's covenant loyalty, God's covenantal love, His faithful love to His people. But in the context of Psalm 118, this, I, this has the idea of God's loyalty to His covenant that is manifest in saving, in delivering His people. And of course, we are uh, this standard uh, acclamation of praise reminds us that not only is good, and not only does He show covenant love, covenant loyalty to His people, but this love, this covenant faithfulness endures forever. Forever, lest we doubt that God would change His mind or break His covenant, we must confess in faith that God's love endures forever. And so we're called to give thanks, to give credit where credit is due. And so, uh, whether it's the, the main worshiper or maybe some of the priests at this point in, in section and verses 2 through 4, they call the whole congregation into God's presence to give thanks to Him for His goodness, for His steadfast love. And you have this threefold identification of different groups. Uh, in the, in the congregation. Let Israel say His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord or let the God-fearers say His steadfast love endures forever. This is the summons to worship. We see the, these three categories. Israel, the house of Aaron, and those who fear the Lord as a common liturgical, uh, those are common liturgical categories. Psalm 115 has this twice. Psalm 135 also has this exact uh, progression of categories. I think it's, it makes sense that the, the worshiper is, the psalmist is calling three different categories of people. The Israelites, the priest, the house of Aaron, and any Gentile God-fearers who would be present in the community. Because after all, God's, uh, God has always been drawing Gentile God-fearers to worship Him uh, alongside the people of Israel. As early as Genesis 12, we see Abraham making converts and then joining in, allying, allying themselves with Abraham. In Exodus 12, when the people of God are delivered 
from Egypt, it says that they a mixed multitude went out with them. You can imagine if the Egyptians had seen all that God had done over the many months that the plagues were carried out, there would have been some who thought, I want to get on this God's good side, right? Forget these these Egyptian gods. These guys are worthless, right? So they went out and joined in the nation of Israel. Uh, In Joshua, you have uh, Rahab uh, and others within Jericho and within Canaan who who tremble before God uh, and, and join with God's people. And in the New Testament, you see this reflected in the story of the Passion Week. John 12 explicitly tells us that there were Greeks who had come to Jerusalem to, uh, to observe the Passover and they wanted to meet with Jesus. So whether you're uh, part of uh, the descendants of Abraham, the people of Israel, or whether you're part of uh, the house of Aaron, the priests, or whether you're a Gentile god fear, all are summoned into God's sanctuary to worship Him and confess that His steadfast love, His covenant faithfulness endures forever. So this opening call to worship, gathering the people, summoning the congregation, then leads the uh, central worshiper, the psalmist here, to recount why he has come to give thanks to God. We always have reason to give thanks to God, but there's this been a specific uh, situation that has led the psalmist to give thanks to God. And that's what we see unfold in the next uh, several sections. In verses 5-7, through seven, we begin to learn why the psalmist is so eager to give thanks. The psalmist was in dire straits. He was in distress. But he called out to the Lord. The Lord answered him and the Lord set him in an open space. He went from dire straits, from being pressed on every side, to the Lord rescuing him and putting him in an open space. The Lord has set him free. He says, the Lord is for me. I will not fear. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. The Lord has answered His cry for help. Yahweh, the covenant name for God. When you see Lord written in small capital letters in your Bible, that's our English Bible's way of of, uh, telling you that this is the word Yahweh. This is the covenant name for God. It's used four times just in these three verses. Verses 5, 6, and 7. The Lord has shown Himself faithful to His covenant. He has proven that He is for His people even when it looked like He had forsaken them. Yahweh, the Lord, has turned distress into deliverance. Luther uh, knew knew that prayer especially in distress, is the primary way that God strengthens the faith of His people. This is what Luther said about uh, this section here. He said, Let everyone know most assuredly and not doubt that God does not send Him this distress to destroy Him, 
He wants to drive him to pray, to implore, to fight, to exercise his faith. So, Luther says, when you face distress, as the psalmist did, say to yourself, this is Luther here, come on, you lazy bum, down on your knees. This is the response to distress. I was in distress, and what did I do? I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me. So when you find yourself in distress, when you find yourself pressed hard on every side, say to yourself, come on, you lazy bum, down on your knees. This is how our faith is strengthened. This is how we come to rejoice in God's salvation. When we see Him answer our prayers. The Lord has a habit of turning distress into deliverance, does He not? And so verses 8 and 9, we have this exhortation, this lesson that the psalmist wants to impart to us. Because God doesn't just answer prayer for the sake of private individuals, just so that... uh, our lives will be less uncomfortable. God answers our prayers so that we can share with others of God's faithfulness, so that we can encourage others to trust in God and to cry out to Him when we are in distress. And so in verses 8 and 9, the psalmist says, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. This is the constant refrain of the Psalms. Take refuge in the Lord. Even if the Lord chastises you, even if the Lord afflicts you, take refuge in the Lord and no one else. Because no one else can save. No one else can deliver. No one else can turn distress into deliverance. No one else, no one else is good uh, and has love that endures forever like God. What you see here is uh, he makes reference to trusting in man. That's the word for dirt. You have it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Dirt Adam. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. So what he's saying, this is called a merism. He's saying, don't trust in man. Don't trust in uh, anyone, no matter how low they are or how high they are. Whether they're a prince or whether they're dirt. Don't trust in any of them or anyone in between. Trust only in the Lord. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. And then he goes on in verses 10 through 12 to again give us a little bit more detail about the type of distress that he faced following this exhortation to the congregation to take refuge in the Lord. He picks back up with his story, recounting the the situation that he was in. He says that, all nations surrounded me in verse 10. This is why, this is one reason, another reason, 
why we're exhorted not to trust in princes. Because they will turn on you. All nations surrounded me. This may seem like hyperbole and over-exaggeration, but it sounds like maybe if this is a king, maybe this was a military battle or a a national disaster uh, that he was facing. It could have been that he was relying on help from other kings, but they turned on him. They were traitors. Or maybe someone from within his own house, the the life of David's, may suggest that there were people in David's own family or in his own house who turned on him and were traitors against him. Whatever the case, we get the idea that this was a very large-scale problem, a very large-scale disaster that may have affected the entire nation. All the nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me. They surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. Four times he uses the word surround. And then he uses this language of bees. You get this idea of these swarming, uh, these swarms of, of bees surrounding the king, surrounding the nation. Bees are an interesting uh, image in the Old, the Old Testament. Um, in Deuteronomy 1, the Amalekites are compared, are described as bees that swarm down on God's people. And in Judges 5, uh, Deborah, her name means bee. She is the honey bee. She, she, she's one of the judges who comes out and defeats the bees, the nations who are, who are swarming around and afflicting Israel. And she sings this song of salvation. Her, she and Barak, Barak sing this song of salvation when the honey bee is able to, to drive back the swarming nations, the bees who are afflicting Israel. You could say she sings like a bird and stings like a bee or something. I don't know. I'm sure there's a good analogy there. It's, so you have this, this context, this historical background of the nations being compared to bees that surround and afflict God's people. But it says that they died out like a fire of thorns. It was really hot, really intense, but like thorns that were burning. They burned out. They flamed out really quick. It was very intense, but it was short-lived because the Lord has granted victory. The Lord enabled the king uh, to achieve victory, to cut off his enemies. It's not exactly clear what it means when he says, in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. It's It's a bit obscure. But whatever it is, we get the idea that the psalmist has achieved victory over the nations, over his foes. This takes us to verses 13 and 14, which are the central section of the psalm. The psalm uh, kind of all is sort of a chiastic structure that moves inward to this central section in verses 13 through 14. It says, the psalmist says, I was pushed hard 
so hard that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. This is a direct quote from the Song of Moses in Exodus 15. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. Spurgeon uh, says that verse 13 contains a blessed but. I was pushed so hard, so hard that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. Spurgeon says, how sweetly can many of us repeat in the retrospect of our past tribulations this delightful sentence, but the Lord helped me. I was assailed by innumerable doubts and fears, but the Lord helped me. My natural unbelief was terribly inflamed by the insinuations of Satan, but the Lord helped me. Multiplied trials were rendered more intense by the cruel assaults of men, and I knew not what to do, but the Lord helped me. This is the refrain of the faithful. When we are pushed so hard, so hard that we are falling, when we are pushed to our breaking point and even beyond, the faithful can always look back and say, but the Lord helped me. He is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage, who was beheaded for his faith, encouraged persecuted Christians with these words. He said, The injuries and punishments of persecutions are not to be feared because the Lord is greater in protecting than the devil is in assaulting. The Lord is greater in protecting than the devil in assaulting. I was pushed so hard that I was falling. But the Lord helped me. He has become my salvation. And of course, the word salvation is the name Jesus. Jesus' name means salvation. Jesus is ultimately, of course, the greatest example of God's salvation. He is salvation in the flesh. He is salvation incarnate. He is the one who has accomplished a new exodus by defeating not just Pharaoh, not just the other nations who war against Him, but defeating death and the grave. Our whole salvation is in Christ. There is no other Savior. And in verses 15 to 18, we see that when we experience the salvation of God, it is only appropriate that we sing about it and recount God's faithfulness in worship. Many of the Psalms follow this pattern of describing the psalmist's plight, of describing his plea for help, and then praising God for His deliverance. In fact, often the psalmist will plead for deliverance on the basis of praise 
It's almost like he's saying to God, the dead can't praise you, God. If you let me die here, then who's going to sing your praises? Right? Your reputation depends on it, Lord. You have to deliver me so I can go sing your praises. And so the it says that because the Lord has helped, because the Lord has delivered, the, set, the sound of a shout and of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord. Another allusion to Exodus 15. The right hand of the Lord acts mightily. The right hand of the Lord exalts, lifts up. The right hand of the Lord acts mightily. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord delivers us so that we may recount the deeds of the Lord. If we are still breathing, we have reason to recount the deeds of the Lord. In verses 19 through 21, the the procession seems to be finally arriving at the entrance to the sanctuary. It's as if the, the, the king has been returning uh, from battle and as he is approaching the temple, he is calling the people to worship. He is recounting uh, the deeds of God's salvation. He is describing the situation. And then in verses 19 and on, we see what appears to be a, a progression into the sanctuary, into uh, the temple of God. And so the central worshiper, the psalmist here, leads the congregation toward the sanctuary and he arrives at the gate of the temple and he requests entrance into God's house. He says, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. And it could be that the priest or the congregation responded, this is the gate of the Lord and the righteous shall enter through it. And then maybe the psalmist responded back, I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. The gates of righteousness are the gates that only the righteous may enter. And so when the, when the uh, psalmist requests entrance into these gates of righteousness, he does so based on the fact that he is righteous. But righteousness, especially in this sense, is not just the same thing as being a good moral person or even just being holy, although that is, that is certainly part of it. But throughout the Psalms especially, we see that righteousness is God's uh, deliverance of His people. Righteous, the righteous are those whom God vindicates. Those whom God saves. And so, the fact that God has delivered the psalmist from distress and defeated his enemies indicates that he is in right standing with God. He has been declared righteous because God has judged his enemies. God has shown his faithfulness to the psalmist. And so based on God's salvation, he can say, open to me the gates of righteousness. He knows uh, that he is in right 
standing with God because God has vindicated him from his enemies and become his salvation. And so, uh, the next to the last, next to the last section, 22 through 24, they are seem to be entering in to the temple, entering in to the sanctuary. The the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This has been brought about by the Lord. It is wondrous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has acted. Let us shout joyously and rejoice in it. God has delivered the psalmist, but God's deliverance often comes in unexpected ways. God has a habit of humiliating those that the world looks up to. The Magnificat, the Song of Mary, captures this perfectly. How God casts down the mighty from their thrones and raises up those of low degree. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, the Apostle Paul picks up this theme and spells it out in beautiful uh, language. He says, God chose... He's speaking of the cross of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The stone that the builders rejected. The stone that didn't make the grade. The stone that didn't make the team. The stone that was rejected as worthless has become the most important stone. Whether this was the actual cornerstone as we think of a cornerstone, uh, some think that this was the most important capstone uh, of like maybe an arch, a stone right in the middle that had to fit perfectly to support the weight of an arch. The Hebrew calls it the head of the corner. Uh, it, whatever, however you want to interpret that, it's obvious that this stone that was rejected, this stone that was thought to be worthless, has become the most important stone. God has taken things and turned them on their head. God has turned rejection into glory. And so, uh, it's interesting at this point that the psalmist refers to the builders. It could be that this, that there were people, there were insiders, there were people of his own house or people of Israel who were involved uh, with the nations in afflicting the king. And this, of course, is exactly what Peter, whose name meant rock, I think he might have had a special attachment to this verse because he quotes it a whole bunch of times in the New Testament. We heard it in 1 Peter 2, but in Acts 4, he indicts the leaders of Jerusalem with this verse. They crucify their own Messiah, but God has made him, God has exalted him and made him. Lord in Christ. And then in verse 24, uh, this is the day the Lord has made, is typically how we translate that. 
better, this is the day the Lord has acted. Or this is the day the Lord has done it. The Lord has brought glory out of rejection. The last section here, verses 25 through 29, bring the culmination of this procession into into the temple. This is where we get the uh, the cry of the triumphal entry, Hosanna. That's just that's that's Hebrew, basically. Hoshiana is uh, is originally Oh save us, Oh save us. Uh, it later kind of got turned into an exclamation of praise, though as well. So uh, the when the when Jesus is entering Jerusalem, the people cry out Hosanna in the highest, or Hosanna to the Son of David. It mixes praise and petition. There is a sense of thankfulness and praise, but there is also a sense of ongoing need for deliverance. It's as if the people are confessing that the war has been won, but there are still battles to fight. And this is the prayer of the church. This has been the prayer of God's people throughout history. And even today, this is the prayer of the church. This is this psalm, Psalm 118, was Luther's favorite psalm. This is what he said uh, in the preface to his commentary on this psalm. He said, this is my psalm, my chosen psalm, the psalm that I love. I love them all, but this psalm is nearest my heart. This psalm has saved me from many oppressing danger, from which neither emperor nor kings nor sages nor saints could have saved me. But I am not jealous of my property. I would divide it with the whole world and would to God that all men would claim this psalm as especially theirs. This is the psalm of the church, the psalm of God's people, as we confess that God has wrought salvation for us, but we acknowledge that we are still in need of His help. We are still in need of His deliverance. We are still in need of His blessing. And so in the final movement of the psalm, there's a a call, another call and response of benediction. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then the, the priest or whomever was waiting in the temple would say, we bless you from the house of the Lord. And then there's this confession. The Lord is God. Yahweh is God. He has made His light shine upon us. Possibly a reference to the pillar of fire in the Exodus that would have shone on God's people and protected them and delivered them from Pharaoh's army. And then there is this encouragement from the worshipers, maybe the priest, to bind the festal sacrifice with cords and take it to the horns of the altar. Probably not bind uh, the song that we sing at the end of the service. That text says bind the sacrifice to the horns of the altar, but there's there's really no precedent for understanding tying a sacrifice down 
on the altar. Probably it's bind the sacrifice and bring it to the horns of the altar to offer it to God. This is the ultimate irony of Palm Sunday right here at the end in this passage. The the crowds declared Jesus to be the Blessed One, the victorious conqueror who was coming in the name of the Lord. But the psalm has that response from the temple. We bless you from the house of the Lord. There was no blessing waiting for Jesus in the temple. Jesus was the righteous one who entered the sanctuary to find nothing but unrighteousness. He entered as the righteous one, but the gates were not righteous. The sanctuary was filled with unrighteousness. Instead of bringing an animal bound to the altar, Jesus came as the Passover lamb Himself. He was not offered within the four horns of the altar, but on the four points of the cross. Whatever the original historical setting, it's obvious that this is looking ahead to and is fulfilled by Jesus in His passion, in His death and resurrection. Jesus is the Blessed One who comes in the name of the Lord. Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us, Paul says. Just as God heard the cries of the children of Israel in Egypt, God has heard our cries and delivered us from the dire straits of distress into the wide space of His kingdom. In His suffering and death, Jesus was surrounded by enemies. He was pushed so hard that He almost fell. But in His resurrection, Jesus conquered not just His foes, but death itself. And Jesus now looks in triumph on the greatest foe of all, death and the grave. By His resurrection from the dead, the Father vindicated Jesus as the Righteous One. And now we are enabled to enter the gates of righteousness in the heavenly sanctuary. We no longer carry a bound animal to the altar to celebrate God's salvation. Instead, we are invited to feast on Christ, the Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice for us. Jesus demonstrated complete trust in His Father in His moment of greatest anguish. And He endured the scorn of the cross, despising its shame for the joy set before Him in His glorification and exaltation. Though the world despised Him, though His own did not receive Him, the Father has accepted Him. The Father has declared Him to be the Son of God in power and has exalted Him to the right hand of the throne of God and put all things under His feet. The stone that the builders rejected has indeed become the most important stone. The stone of God's kingdom that dashes to pieces all other kingdoms. Only the Lord could have brought this to pass. 
and it is wondrous in our eyes. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You turn distress into deliverance. That You turn rejection into glory. That You have laid a precious stone in Zion and made us living stones in a temple built up for Your Spirit. Lord, we thank You for the sacrifice, the humility of Christ in sharing in our sinful humanity and in serving us to the point of death. We thank You for exalting Him, for vindicating Him, and for exalting us with Him. May we know this joy. May we know this the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.